action is superordinate to all of these things, which again, this is mind-blowing, values, ends, means, choice, preference, cost, profit and loss, as well as time and causality. These are all categories below human action. Yeah. That's, this is why it's so mind-bending. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Knuds von Holm, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Thank you, Robert Friedlund. Great to have you here uh, in person, which is nice. We're in Lugano, Switzerland for the Plan B Forum. And it is a privilege to have you here to talk about a very difficult, but very insightful and very short book written by Hoppe, titled Economic Science and the Austrian Method. Yeah. And this was your idea. (laughs) This is a great book. We should probably warn people, though, that it's quite dense. Yeah. And you had the idea that we should probably describe the lineage of Hoppe, who he is, who his predecessors are. But first, like the circle is complete there, how I found this book. Mm -hmm. It uh, it got recommended to me by by uh, Max Hillebrand mm-hmm. after I saw your series on another favorite book that was also recommended by Max, the um, Ethics of Liberty Ethics of Liberty by Rothbard. So uh, as, as we were saying before, like um, the the Austrians are sort of like Sith lords uh, <laughs> in in the way that they, there's only two at the time, 
I mean, uh, Rothbard was a student of Mises, mm-hmm. and Hoppe is the student of Rothbard. Mm-hmm. And I guess Rahim is the student of Hoppe. Yeah, yeah that's and, right. Well, I guess there's two then, with Kinsella also, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, that's. And Hoppe is very good at explaining why Mises matters mm-hmm. uh, and why praxeology matters and why um, Austrian economics matter. Uh, so this book has a lot to do with Mises and like why Mises was right and the, the connection between Mises and philosophy and methodology in general. Yes. Yeah. And the way Hoppe writes is inarguable. Yeah. So it's hard to argue with him. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get into, we'll read several excerpts today to give you a feel for his writing style. It is quite dense. Um, I would encourage everyone to just read the book. It's only 89 pages. Yeah. It'll take you a while though, because you'll need to read and reread some of the passages to get it to stick. But when it sticks, I don't, I think it changes you. Yeah. You know, it's on YouTube. It's a, uh, four part series on YouTube. Okay. The audiobook. We will link to that in the show notes. I didn't yep. know that actually. Um, okay. So with that, let's get started. Absolutely. So the first excerpt I'm going to read comes from page seven in the book. And this is in the section titled Praxeology and Economic Science. Hoppe writes The ultimate difference from which all disagreements at the levels of economic theory and economic policy stem, disagreements, for instance, as regards the merit of the gold standard versus fiat money, free banking versus central banking, the welfare implications of markets versus state action, capitalism versus socialism, the theory of interest and the business cycle, etc., concerns the answer to the very first question that any economist must raise. What is the subject matter of economics and what kind of propositions are economic theorems? Mises's answer is that economics is the science of human action. In itself, this may not sound very controversial. But then Mises says of the science of economics, now quoting Mises, Its statements and propositions are not derived from experience. They are, like those of logic and mathematics, a priori. They are not subject to verification and falsification on the ground of experience and facts. They are both logically and temporally antecedent to any comprehension of historical facts. They are a necessary requirement of any intellectual grasp of historical events. So this is the difference between economic theory and economic history, right? Yeah. How economics actually works as deduced from axioms, which we'll get into some of those, yeah. versus an observation of how economies have unfolded over time yeah, yeah. historically. Reading charts and so on. Exactly. So, and to... I think the point he's making here is like you need the theory is almost the frame of reference through yeah. which to understand the historical observations. Yeah, and it's questionable whether it should even be called a theory. It should be called a fact, right? Because it's a theory implies that it can be falsifiable, uh, that it's falsifiable. True. 
but the very the very purpose of an of an irrefutable axiom is the irre, its irrefutableness yes. that you can't argue against it. Uh-huh. And there's even a section in this book about uh, argumentation itself as mm-hmm. a subcategory of action, which is like, in my opinion, Hoppe's most profound idea probably, mm-hmm. and one of the least appreciated ideas of the last century that's never talked about. So let's talk about it here. Yeah. Let's talk about it. And yeah, I, to your point, theory as it's popularly understood is something that's hypothetical versus a fact. But I think the term that's being invoked here is more like, I think it's ancient Greek theoria, yeah. right? Which is the the essence of understanding an observation. Yeah. You know, so uh, a logical framework applied to comprehending sensorial experience. Yeah, as opposed to a map, which is sort of what theory means in the, for the empiricist. Yes, right, right, right. So, okay. That's a good, and the other, I guess, difference here, which I think the terminology may or not may or may not be used, it's under theory, we would call that rationalism, Right. Yeah. Like as Mises is saying here, these are they're like logic and mathematics. They're a priori, so there's no priors to them. Yeah. So in the same way, the common example I like to use in Euclidean geometry, for instance, we assume that two parallel lines never touch. Yeah. That's not empirically derived. We don't go out into nature and try to find all the the lines that are parallel and test them to the end of the universe and make sure they never touch. It's just an assumption or an axiom that from which all other theorems in Euclidean geometry are deduced. Yeah, and it, I would say that it's even deeper than that. It's a definition of the very word parallel. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you went out into nature and tried to find two perfectly parallel things you mm-hmm. couldn't find that because those things are made up of atoms and you know uh-huh. they're not perfectly in parallel like but the word parallel means two lines that don't cross two means one plus one like yes this, this is all in the definitions of the words themselves yes correct correct so yeah and the point well one of the things he's saying here right is all the the merit of the gold standard versus fiat money, free banking versus central banking, welfare implications of markets versus state action, capitalism versus socialism, theory of interest and the business cycle. These are deducible yeah. from axioms rather than knowledge we are going to glean through observation. That would be the domain of economic history, yeah. but it's not appropriate to economic theory as we're using the term no. here. And, and like the word central bank, for instance, is way, way, way harder to define than the world than the word parallel. <laughs> like a parallel is like that is exactly what you say. It's two lines heading in the same same direction that never cross paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, a central bank, uh, it's an a man made institution. Very hard to define what it is or what it is it's supposed to do or not what it's not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's all. Yeah, but as Hoppus states here, that you you can you can actually derive like by, by logical deduction alone, you can reach cer- certain conclusions about the outcome. Uh, not in absolute terms, mm-hmm. but you can you can you can say that a 
consensual transaction will have a higher total output of value than a non-consensual one because it has to do with how we define the word value and where it comes from. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Which the next excerpt goes straight into that. So coming from page 15 now, Hopper writes, it seems quite evident, except to most economists for the last 40 years, that the answer to these questions is a clear and unambiguous no. Sorry, I should back up and just read the question. Yeah. So I'm going to back up the excerpt here. Considering such propositions, is the validation process involved in establishing them as true or false as as true or false of the same type as that involved in establishing a proposition in the natural sciences. Mm-hmm. So he's delineating between the social sciences and the natural sciences. Are these propositions hypothetical in the same sense as a proposition regarding the effects of mixing two types of natural materials? Do we have to test these economic propositions continuously against observations? And does it require a never-ending trial and error process in order to find out the range of application for these propositions and to gradually improve our knowledge, such as we have seen to be the case in the natural sciences? And to go back to the excerpt where I started, he said the answer is an unambiguous no. Yeah. To continue that excerpt, he says that A and B must expect to profit and have reverse preference orders follows from our understanding of what an exchange is. And the same is, and the same is the case concerning the consequences of a coerced exchange. It is inconceivable that things could ever be different. It was so a million years ago, and it will be so a million years hence. And the range of application for these propositions, too, is clear once and for all. They are true whenever something is a voluntary exchange or a coerced exchange, and that is all there is to it. And I'll go on a little further here. There is no difference with respect to the other examples given, that the marginal utility of additional units of supply of homogeneous goods must fall, follows from the incontestable statement that every acting person always prefers what satisfies him more over what satisfies him less. It is simply absurd to think that continuous testing would be required to establish such a proposition. A lot of it is about methodology in general and what method is best for what purposes. And Hoppe even argues that a priori thinking should be all over science and not not necessarily be limited to economics. Uh, That this approach is, is necessary. He argues that even the arguments for empiricism are a priori statements themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just never recognized in academia that this is the case. Like deductive reasoning is the base layer of all knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's this is epistemological, right? It's like, exactly. how, how do we know things? Yeah. And very meta. Very meta. And m- most people in modernity consider empirical science being uh, a primary, if not the only form of epistemology that we develop a hypothesis, test it, whatever we cannot disprove is science. 
Yeah, and it's the closest we'll ever get to the truth. That's like what empiricism claims. But in this book, Hoppe Hoppe, uh, points out that that statement in itself, that empiricism can only get to, uh, can only be like the closest approximation of truth. That is an a priori statement in itself. Yes. It presupposes that you think that there is such a thing as an absolute truth. In this case, the the absolute truth you're referring to is that empiricism is not enough. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So so it's all about these logical loops that you need uh, for for to to uh, to deny certain axioms. Yes. Uh, and ho- uh, this book is a lot about pointing out that it's a fool's errand to try and do that because yes. you're, you're, you're inconsistent. Yeah, so maybe said another way, empiricism is making the claim that the best we can do is get closer approximations of truth. Yeah. That we can never reach an absolute truth. Yeah. But that assertion itself is a truth claim, right? It's an absolute truth claim. It's saying, yeah. which is sort of contradictory, right? It's saying exactly. it's absolutely true that we can only have relative truths, something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> and Hoppe will argue that no, there are certain domains, yeah. logic, mathematics, economics, or praxeology, that we can have absolute truths. And he'll give some examples of that. Yeah. And to, to mo- most people don't realize that this is the case for the social sciences as well as logic and mathematics. Yes. Yes. That this is this is what Hoppe so, so brilliantly points out in this book that you can do the same thing to the social sciences be, by starting from the point of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I mean, empiricism is extremely useful for all sorts of things. We mm-hmm. wouldn't have it's like this water bottle. We wouldn't have. We wouldn't be here because airplanes wouldn't exist if we mm-hmm. didn't have the like trial and error. That's, yes. that's like a very powerful thing. But the thing Hopper points out here is that they must always be preceded by action. Only a, an observation is an action in itself. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Okay. So reading another excerpt here. Further, this is on page 16, Hoppe writes, an increase in unemployment and a decrease in the purchasing power of money are consequences which are logically implied in the very description of the initial condition as stated in the propositions at hand. As a matter of fact, it is absurd to regard these predictions as hypothetical and to think that their validity could be established independently of observations, i.e., other than by actually trying out minimum wage laws or printing more money and observing what happens. To use an analogy, it is as if one wanted to establish the theorem of Pythagoras by actually measuring sides and angles of triangles. Just as anyone would have to comment on such an endeavor, mustn't we we say that to think economic propositions would have to be empirically tested is a sign of outright intellectual confusion. Hmm. So again, the parallel lines never touching yeah. as like a basic assumption. So he's saying the same thing of yeah. the Pythagorean theorem, for instance. Yeah, and this is one of the most common misconceptions about 
Austrian economics, it's like people think that it's one theory among many uh -huh. and that these theories are competing with one another. And like, no, this is how it actually works. Like it, it clearly states it's, it's purely logical, all of it. Uh -huh. And it clearly states what is possible and what's not possible to know about human action, i.e. economics. Yes. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, 1, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash what is money. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility, and it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. All right, so now I'll read another excerpt. This is from page 20. Hopper writes, Consider, for example, this programmatic statement of his. So far, it has been assumed that our knowledge had to conform to observational reality. Instead, it should be assumed that observational reality conform to our, our knowledge. Mises provides the solution to this challenge. It is true, as Kant says, that true synthetic a priori propositions are grounded in self-evident axioms, and that these axioms have to be understood by reflection upon ourselves, rather than being in any meaningful sense, quote-unquote, observable. Yet we have to go one step further. We must recognize that such necessary truths are not simply categories of our mind, but that our mind is one of acting persons. Our mental categories have to be understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action. And as soon as this is recognized, all idealistic suggestions immediately disappear. Instead, an epistemology claiming the existence of true synthetic a priori propositions becomes a realistic epistemology. Since it is understood as ultimately grounded in categories of action, the gulf between the mental and the real, outside 
physical world is bridged. As categories of action, they must be mental things as much as they are characteristics of reality, for it is through actions that the mind and reality make contact. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so intuitive when you think about it. Like, the action is the bridge between the subjective and the objective. Uh -huh. That's... With, uh, before we started recording, we talked a, a bit about that mm -hmm. that uh, dichotomy between the subjective and objective, and we can easily see that like action is is above that. That's what yes. connects the two the two worlds. Like what I think, what I feel, and what I decide to do is affecting the world around me. Like mm -hmm. both in a in in so many ways, and like that's that's the bridge between the two worlds is action. Like there's there's no denying that. Yes, I, I should just mention here some of these terms. We are kind of jumping forward in the yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. It needs some definitions. Yes, and so he's deriving some of this from the philosophy of Kant. Mm -hmm. So you might hear us use terms like analytic versus synthetic propositions. Yeah. And again, we're not going to dwell on that. I would just encourage the readers to go to the book to try to flesh that out. Um, but in this particular excerpt, he's going back to Descartes' famous claim, right? I think, therefore, I am. Yeah. Is it cogito ergo sum, I think? Yeah. It's later been revised by other philosophers to, I think, therefore, some thinking is going on somewhere, <laughs> which I like better. Uh, this passage, though, actually blew my mind yeah because i think most people in the world myself included prior to well getting into bitcoin reading the book leela mm -hmm. which is a, a book on metaphysics by robert persig which i haven't read yet talking to john verveke yeah who has who says there's certain things in the world that are neither objective or subjective so mm -hmm. certain things are transjective yeah yeah the example he likes to give is adaptivity. Yeah. It's like, well, is is adaptivity a subjective thing, right? Is the shark just conforming to the ocean or is it is it something objective, right? The ocean is is molding the shark. It's is neither one. It's it's between the two yeah. that adaptivity is occurring. And what he's saying here is that this split we've inherited from Descartes right? I think subject, therefore I am object. This subjective, this subject object duality itself is a subcategory of human action. Yeah. Because to think. Or shark actions. Nor shark actions. <laughs> because to think, and again, if we interpret the term action, right? To purposefully use means to pursue ends. Yeah. Thinking itself is a means, right? And so subject and object are s categories below action. Yeah. They're not reality, right? These are these are human constructs, I guess, yeah. or categories for us to deal with and describe reality. Observing something is an action. Yes. So so if if I observe this table and I say this is uh, an ob this is an object in the objective in objective reality like 
in order to make any statement about it, I have to deliberately observe it mm -hmm. first. Like, so that's, it's, it's kind of hard to explain these things and uh, you should really read the book. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the, the, these insights are, are very interesting. Yes. Especially since he goes deep into how they're irrefutable. Yeah. And that's the, sort of like the most interesting part. Like you can't argue against them uh, without lo running into a logical contradiction. Yeah. It becomes like one of those MC Escher pen paintings like yes. that, that just doesn't work. Circularity. Yeah. 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 I guess maybe to extend on this one, this is not in the book itself, but this is in the realm of praxeology. Like this table can be a means, hmm. right? Yeah. I want to rest my water on the table. It's a means to the end of me resting my water on the table. But it can also be an obstacle, yeah. right? If you're paying someone to jump over the table, all of a sudden- Running a marathon through the room, like- Exactly. <laughs> so although the table may exist in physical objective reality, there's also this domain of relevance, let's say, or of human action, that this table can be different things to different people. Depending on how we value it at the moment. Exactly. Value is subjective to temporally and subjectively yes yeah. it could increase my utility or it could cause me disutility yeah depending on the course of my goal-directed action exactly something like that very hard stuff to talk about okay um there's another little piece of the excerpt here i'll read as well also from page 20 yet it is mises who brings this insight into the foreground causality he realizes is a category of action. To act means to interfere at some earlier point in time in order to produce some later result. And thus, every actor must presuppose the existence of constantly operating causes. Causality is a prerequisite of acting, as Mises put it. Yeah, that's, that's so deep when you think about what that implies like so again subject object not reality a subcategory of human action which is reality at least for us yeah. as acting people causality too right one of these primary things we think the universe operates as a sequence of causes and effects yeah not necessarily i mean it causality is a prerequisite to acting as Mises puts it here. So yeah, it's yeah. an assumption we're making to act in the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the other way around to a certain extent, uh, I mean, uh, I think therefore I am uh -huh. implies that, that you have to act, you have to think right in order to be exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yes. So. I think therefore I am is assuming causality. Yes. But causality is a subcategory of action. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, but the very act of thinking, thinking in itself is an action. Yes. Mises not only recognizes that epistemology indirectly rests on our reflective knowledge of action and can thereby claim to state something a priori true about reality 
but that economics does so too, and does so in a much more direct way. Economic propositions flow directly from our reflectively gained knowledge of action, and the status of these propositions as a priori true statements about something real is derived from our understanding of what Mises terms the axiom of action. This axiom, the proposition that humans act, fulfills the requirements precisely for a true, synthetic, a priori proposition. It cannot be denied that this proposition is true, since the denial would have to be categorized as an action. And so the truth of the statement literally cannot be undone. And the axiom is also not derived from observation. There are only bodily movements to be observed, but no such things as actions. No. The axiom stems instead from reflective understanding. And there's another, I'm going to jump ahead to 24 to extend, he kind of restates this in a better way, I think. Mm -hmm. And I should restate the axiom of action, right? Man must choose means to pursue ends. Well, the axiom of action is man must act. Yes. It's as simple as that. Yes. The, uh, but action means? Action means, yeah, there's, as Mises puts it, you have a felt uneasiness mm -hmm. and you imagine a state of the future in which that uneasiness is relieved somehow. Mm -hmm. And therefore you choose means to reach that end. Yes. Uh, uh, which also implies that you have a value hierarchy in your head because you want to remove the worst uneasiness before you remove the others. So this is how humans choose to do one thing over another, yes. which also implies that if we have a reversed uh, need, mm -hmm. so so if you need something I have and I have something uh, you need um, and vice versa, <laughs> The words got blended together there. Mm. But if, if you need something I have and I have something, I need something you have. Mm. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, and then we have inverse valuations of those two things. Mm -hmm. And that's how trade happens. It yes. does not, it cannot happen if we don't believe, both believe that we will profit from making the trade. Yes. And this is true even for inconsensual, uh, partly inconsensual trade, like with inflationary currencies or if there's a VAT tax or something, mm -hmm. we still, by the action itself, prove that we valued doing that thing higher than anything else we could have chosen to do uh, during that period of time. Yes. So if I buy, oh, let's say something with a high tax to but if I buy a bottle of vodka, 400% tax in, in Sweden, <laughs> uh, I, I buy that action alone. I, I still, I, I prove that I value the alcohol, uh, more than I value the money I have to give up to the, even to the state. Like, yes. so, so that's why markets sort of still work, even though, it, even when there's a lot of interventionism in them. Yes. Um, so, uh, 
the metaphor I like to do is like uh, an, a market with interventionism is like a dog on three legs. You can still walk, but <laughs> Not as limping well. rather than running. Yes. Yes. So important there, and this is intuitive, any course of action you select comes at the necessary exclusion of all other possible courses yeah. of action you could have selected. You can only do one thing at a time. Yes, uh, Mises put this so beautifully um, about the like the uh, and Rothbard and Hoppe too about like you imagine heaven or uh, paradise where you mm -hmm. where you can have anything you want mm -hmm. at will. Only one person can still take up the space he's taking up at 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 that one time. So there's yeah. still a, a potential for conflict between yes. that person and another person in heaven because they can't stand at the same point at the same time. They can't be in the same body at yes. the same time. So um, even in a ne damn near perfect world, you still have to choose. Like if, if you can have everything you want, uh, like, you know, if you're, uh, what's his name, Thanos, uh, <laughs> and a golden gauntlet, <laughs> and you can make anything happen. You still have to choose what to do at each point in time. Yes. Uh, I believe Thanos could reverse time as well, but let's, <laughs> let's just <laughs> discard that. Well, we'll get into time too here shortly, but um, no, it's a good point that even, I think Hoppe calls it the land of milk and honey, Yeah, right? Yeah. Where there is no economic scarcity and you can just wish all yeah. the cakes and cars and houses into existence that you want. We will still be forced to deal with scarcity because you have to choose where to stand. Yeah. And if someone's choosing to stand in the same place, then there's cross purposes there. Yes. So there is scarcity in space. Yes. And also scarcity in time. Yes. The the the, the funny parallel I would draw here is that if you could live forever and you were indestructible, you wouldn't have that time constraint and therefore life would be of no value. Meaningless. <laughs> because yeah. it's divided by zero. Like right. It, uh, right. Exactly. And to your point about consensual exchange, which he'll get into more later, it's only through consensual exchange that both parties benefit, right? Profit, and we'll define yeah. profit shortly. It's not financial necessarily. It's a psychological profit. Yeah, It's a movement towards, away from the state of felt uneasiness toward the idealized state of relief from yeah. that uneasiness. Here maybe we should go into the, the difference between uh, voluntary and consensual, yes. Because the, the why I react is is that uh, the the definite the example I've seen you use before is that I point a gun to your head and say, mm -hmm. "Give me all your money." Mm -hmm. You voluntarily give it up. That's right. But I would say that it's through voluntary exchange that we believe we would profit because profit is always in relation to something else. There's always mm -hmm. an alternative cost. And if I'm pointing a gun at your head and say, "Give me all your money." you profit from giving it up right. by not dying like, yes. because you prefer that yes. state of being. Right, right, right. Or, or not being. Yes, I got that example from Kinsella, mm -hmm. who I think is also a student of Hoppe's. Yeah. And he was just drawing the subtle distinction between voluntary and consensual. And Hoppe's actually using the word voluntary here. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a, a good ex distinction because yeah. profit has to do with voluntary and not consensual. It, I think in, a, in relative terms, I think Hoppe makes the well. 
linguistically, he did the opposite. He said, you give your wallet up voluntarily to the yeah, mugger, yeah. right? Like yeah. you move your arm to the pocket to the guy. Yeah. But it's not consensual because it's no. under conditions of duress. There's a threat. Yes, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that you still find that more profitable than Correct. not doing the thing. Correct. So the term profit is yes. here in, like like I said, relative terms. Yes. Like, of course, it would have been more profitable to not give... <laughs> Financially option, profitable. Yeah. But, but profit is not a financial thing. It's... it's psychological. Psychological. Yes. And... <laughs> Stefan Kinsella, if you're listening to this, you're welcome to the Freedom Footprint show anytime. <laughs> Shoot me a DM. <laughs> but yeah, that's a good point. Um, you are finding it more profitable to live than you are to keep your wallet. Yeah. You're removing the state of felt uneasiness, which yeah. is the gun to your head, right? Exactly. Keep your money or your life. Like, well, you can have my money because I value. Yeah. I prefer my life above the money in my wallet in that moment. Yeah. And the act of surrendering the wallet is an expression of that value. Exactly. And like in Sweden uh, at the moment, there or uh, for the last couple of years, the leftists always, um, um, th they have this argument that there should be no profits in public schools. Mm -hmm. Like we should remove profits from not, not only schools, but from all, from the public se mm -hmm. sector, basically. And like to... To me, that sounds like you haven't understood anything because mm. it's all about profits. Like mm -hmm. the, the, the only yes. thing you promote is losses if you don't have profit. So so profit is not a monetary thing. It's not a financial word. It's just like, did I gain or did I lose from like, yes. what is it? It's a psychological thing. Yes. Did I get to a state of less uneasiness or not? Exactly. So... To profit is to remove some felt uneasiness. A loss would be to increase felt uneasiness. Yes, and we trade not because we know that we're going to profit, but we think that we will. Mm -hmm. So I exactly yeah. So if I buy a bottle of water, I expect it to quench my thirst, but I I cannot ever be sure that it will. Right, right. I may have to buy another one. So sure. And if it's laced with poison, then it's going to increase your felt uneasiness. So it's, it's yeah. an expectation, not a guarantee when exactly. you act. Yeah. And so part and parcel to all of this is that all action involves this, these value hierarchies. You could yeah. also consider these as like priority stacks. Like I'm going to do A, then I'm going to do B, then I'm going to do C. Yeah. As I move through the world along my course of goal-directed action from state of felt uneasiness toward relief of felt uneasiness, yeah. you can only do one thing at a time. So yeah. it's the prioritization. And it's always changing. Always changing. The other point here that's important is that it's ordinal in nature, and not cardinal. cardinal. Yeah. First, second, third. You can't say, I value this thing 32 points, this, this thing 64 points. No. You know, I value this 32 points more than that thing. You can't compare them in that way. Yeah, exactly. And that's why money is so confusing to people. Yes. Uh, be, because <laughs> you, by spending a certain amount of money, you express uh, a priority. Uh -huh. And you, you express an ordinal thing by, yeah. by using something that, that's numbered 
cardinally. Yes. <laughs> Which is very weird. So, so people think that money is this thing, these papers with these numbers on, but anything is money. And money is an adjective, as we've talked about before, yeah. the Hay Hayekian uh, uh, theory that <laughs> objects can have a, we can, and that's also subjective, how how much moneyness an object has to us, like, or intersubjective, I would say, like, yes. because it's this usefulness as a medium of change, store of value and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But those are all, those are all human constructs. Yeah. And it's how we, how easy, how much utility we can derive from the thing. Exactly. And money is especially strange in this regard because we have these ordinal stacks of preferences or or values, valuation hierarchies. But money compresses everyone's everyone that's using the money and participating in the pricing system mm -hmm. converts all of those valuation hierarchies into one cardinal number, yeah, which is the price. Well, mostly, like you, an auction is a good example of how money works. Like, <laughs> because you raise the price and you raise the little mm -hmm. sign and say, oh, no, I bid more than you do. And uh, at a certain point, you, there's a highest bidder. Mm -hmm. But all prices are that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's yes. just that, like, the, the price for a water bottle in a gas station, it, it has already done the whole process of auctioning like mm -hmm. the, the prices the price has already been set at a certain level right and uh it's easier for the it's easy for the merchant to to test the market by just raising the price by a fraction of a euro and see if he sells as many bottles yes or if he sells less bottles like uh only the entrepreneur can make that decision like yes what is the correct price yes so to your point, money is not necessarily a thing. Well, it's an attribute. I guess you could say that an yeah. attribute's a thing. An it's expression. Not, yes. Even. And everything has some degree of moneyness, yeah. right? Which would be the expectation that you could exchange this thing in the future for something else that you want or value. Yeah. And the thing that has the most moneyness is what we call money. Prices, though, like again, distinct from valuation, we all typically conflate the two, right? This house is valued at $500,000. Yeah. You'll hear people say, not technically correct. Priced at $500,000, but the valuation aspect is very subjective, right? Yeah, yeah, Maybe that's what valuation is. Like, it's it's literally pulling it out of the air. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, a number. prices are this very useful social construct that is an an, an appraisal of value of the market, yeah. right? And it's really just telling you, it's a it's a look back in time. It's like the last transaction cleared at this price. Now the house that's on the market is a little subtly different because it hasn't necessarily cleared yet. No. Someone, it's a, it's a, it's an ask, right? So yeah, yeah. It's asking a price. I, th th I have a, uh, from experience, uh, like we uh, bought an apartment once and sold it a year after. And the guy I sold it to, he said, I'll, I'll give you whatever it's valued at. Like, <laughs> so there's a guy putting a value on the apartment. And then that, that number, arbitrary number, became what the guy bought it for. So it's like a, a loop. Yes. <laughs> he only bought it because this third-party guy said it was worth that. Right. 
But what, what, what actually made the prediction true was the action of the buyer. Yes. And not whatever arbitrary number that that guy just came up with on the spot. Yes, yes. Which is, which is so weird. So people think that these valuations are representations of the truth, but it's only true because you, you, because you believed in it. Right, because <laughs> you believe someone else. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's only true if you believe in it. So, yes. so here's the God debate again. <laughs> well, and it's a close and a good healthy pricing system. It's a close approximation of the truth you know, in a market where information is flowing and whatnot, because that's what, it's a reflection of the value that people have most recently assigned to it. Yeah. In that it was the last trade that cleared at a certain price. So this is why pricing is so important to deal with the intersubjective valuation of others, basically. And and as as Hopper points out in this book, this is not economics. (laughs) Uh Uh, Valuations of houses and price predictions and looking at charts and trying to predict the market. It's nothing to do with economics. The other thing we should say about these value hierarchies is that um, this is where we get the marginal theory of value, right? That we value things at the margin, right? Marginal utility, yeah. Yes, so one additional unit of the thing, how much do I value that? Not how much do I value all the water in the world, it's how much water do I have relative to my felt uneasiness I want to yeah. relieve or prepare for the future, which is also a form of yeah. removing felt uneasiness. How much do I value the additional unit you, of water? Yeah, yeah. And so this was a the big insight of the marginalism the marginalism revolution. Basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. And this is also why money has such a high value to so many people, because mm-hmm. an additional unit can always satisfy another need since right. you can trade it for everything else. Exactly. And so the last thing I think we should say about value as it pertains to action is that, again, you can't see value, you can't measure value because it's subjective, although pricing gives us an appraisal of value. Mm -hmm. The only way you can see value expressed in the world is through action, right? Any action someone takes, as you said, with a bottle of liquor, yeah. I value the bottle of liquor more than the money when I buy it. Yeah, yeah. I'm proving that. It doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what I tell you I'm going to do. You have to act yeah. to express the value. Yeah, uh, that's what an action is. It's, yeah. a, it's, uh, it's an expression of value. Yes. Nothing more, nothing less. It expresses what you value the most at that point yes. in time. And we could also use the word preference if value is too abstract. It's like yeah. you're expressing your preference yeah. through action basically. One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world. My thinking is more lucid and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution.
Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock insurance you got to have some insurance you got to there's an insurance they shouldn't even call it insurance they should just call it in case shit <laughs> like, i give a company some money in case shit happens now if shit don't happen shouldn't i get my money back <laughs> so with crowd health instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, okay, I want to extend. So what he was saying earlier is that you, the axiom of action is irrefutable. And so he goes on to write this, which I think is an even more, uh, a better description of, of why it's irrefutable. This is page 23. And lastly, it is not plainly evident or observable that at its starting point, every goal of action must be considered worth more to the actor than its cost and capable of yielding a profit, i.e. a result whose value is ranked higher than that of the foregone opportunities. And yet, Every action is also invariably threatened by the possibility of a loss if an actor finds, in retrospect, that the result actually achieved, contrary to previous expectations, has a lower value than the relinquished alternative would have had. Again, if you bought the water to quench your thirst, but it was poison, right? You could suffer a loss. Yes. Yeah. I go to the movies, I see a movie that I uh, got good reviews and it sucks, then that's a loss. Yes, yes. He goes on to write, all of these categories, values, ends, means, choice, preference, cost, profit and loss, as well as time and causality, are implied in the axiom of action. Yeah. Yet, that one is able to interpret observations in such categories requires that one already knows what it means to act. No one who is not an actor could ever understand them. They are not given, ready to be observed, but observational experience is cast in these terms as it is construed 
by an actor. That's a that's a dense <laughs> sentence, but yeah, yes, I, I, I can't. I don't have any better words to express that sentence. And yeah, yeah. and that's not actually the excerpt I wanted to read. I can't find the one I want to read. Oh, okay, here we go. Action is superordinate to all of these things, which again, this is mind blowing. Values, ends, means, choice, preference, cost, profit and loss, as well as time and causality. These are all categories below human action. Yeah. That's, this is why it's so mind bending. Um, now, back to the axiomatic nature why why is the axiom of action axiomatic meaning that it's like an irrefutable assumption on which from which we deduce all these economic theorems to get into the theory of interest marginal utility all of these things hopper writes the attempt to disprove the action axiom would itself be an action aimed at a goal, requiring means, excluding other courses of action, incurring cost, subjecting the actor to the possibility of achieving or not achieving the desired goal, and so leading to a profit or a loss. Yeah, that is uh, the, the the term cost here is important to to uh, underline that that as the term just as with the term profit. It refers to a psychological cost. Yes. And he goes on to write, and the very possession of such knowledge then can never be disputed. And the validity of these concepts can never be falsified by any contingent experience. For disputing or falsifying anything would already have presupposed their very existence. As a matter of fact, a situation in which these categories of action would cease to have a real to have a real existence could itself never be observed for making an observation to is an action. So it's theory is superordinate to observation almost because action itself or the axiom of action yeah. that we have gleaned through our reflective understanding is above observation because observation is an action. Right, and the, the way I've tried to sum this up, if we understand that action is this attempt to remove felt uneasiness, we have to choose means to pursue the end, whatever the end may be, the end is removal of felt uneasiness. Yeah, it could be suicide. Anything, like, right? Anything. But to Intrigue. argue against the axiom of action is to employ the means of argumentation yeah. to with the end of refuting the axiom of action. So you see how you get in this like perfect, catch, catch immutable yeah. <laughs> statement yeah. that man must act. Right? Even if you want to argue against it, well, you're acting. Exactly. <laughs> that's, like, <laughs> that's, why the, that's why it's the basis of all things. Right? Yes. And like... If we could encourage the viewer to try to pop a hole in that argument and try to refute it, right? Because good luck, <laughs> like the Morgan Freeman meme. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> it's airtight. We might say. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else to say about that? I mean, the way he writes, and just to it, comment on the writing, yeah, it's, it's like 
try to argue with Hoppe. I mean, no. read the book and, and write and, the argument. And that's why this is such a hard book to talk about because you can't express these things better than Hoppe already right. does. Yes. And if that wasn't enough, we'll just read one last excerpt here that I think deals a death blow to empiricism. Hopper writes, so perhaps we should choose the other available option and declare the fundamental empiricist distinction between empirical and analytical knowledge and empirical statement. But then the empiri empiricist position would no longer carry any weight whatsoever. For if this were done, it would have to be admitted that the proposition as an empirical one might well be wrong and that one would be entitled to hear on the basis of what criterion one would have to decide whether or not it was. More decisively, as an empirical proposition, right or wrong, it could only state a historical fact, something like, all hereforto scrutinized propositions fall indeed into the two categories, analytical and empirical. The statement would entirely would be entirely irrelevant for determining whether it would be possible to produce propositions that are, a, that are true a priori and are still empirical ones. Indeed, if empiricism's, empiricism's central claim were declared an empirical proposition, empiricism would cease altogether to be an epistemology, a logic of science, and would no more than a and would be no more than a completely arbitrary verbal convention of calling certain arbitrary ways of dealing with certain statements certain arbitrary names. Empiricism would be a position void of any justification. Yeah, uh, let me try to unpack that a bit because I, I, I love this section of the book. And um, astronomy, for instance, if you... If you uh, how we figured out how Jupiter moves mm -hmm. is by observing Jupiter. Yes. Doing measurements and then coming up with a theory of a mathematical formula that describes the motion of Jupiter. Yes. And we know that this, at any point in time, this, this mathematical formula can be updated mm -hmm. uh, because we observe Jupiter doing something that it didn't do the day before. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, so, so, uh, em empirical Theories based on empirical observation are always subject to change. Like, yeah. and and this is the empiricist view, as Hopper puts it, is that uh, uh, this is the closest thing we can ever get to a truth claim. Yeah. But as he as he points out in this section, to test the truth claim of that uh, statement itself uh, would. Like if we apply that that claim about empiricism to that definition of empiricism and truthfulness of empirical statements, we would have to accept that that statement in itself could be falsifiable at any point, mm -hmm. making the whole argument pointless. Yes. So, so in order for to say that by observing reality, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. uh, we can. We can come up with theories that can then be falsifiable, but they make a good approximation of truth. The map can never be the territory here, but uh, we can make a good approximation of mm -hmm. how the universe works. Uh, that statement requires us to accept 
that we can make absolute truth claim, uh, absolutely truthful claim, yeah. because that claim in itself, re re it needs to be absolutely true yeah. that the that empiricism cannot be absolutely true. Yes, because otherwise you get into this catch twenty two thing again. Yes, and this is what Hopper does so beautifully in this book. There's so many, so many of these catch twenty two things. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, the catch twenty two that sort of makes the axiom of action indestructible or impenetrable or unshakable. Yeah, that same catch twenty two applies in the reverse to empiricism. Right. Yeah. Well, I I wouldn't say that it it doesn't destroy empiricism. It makes empiricism better, like and stronger. Like if it you does. if you if you can claim that, oh, holy shit, we found a very very cool, nice method to measure things and come up with theories here. And yes. it's 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 not perfect by any means, but it's a it's a damn good tool. Yes, and that's all empiricism needs to be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. To to rephrase, it destroys any claims on absolute truth that empiricism may attempt to make, or if there's an empirical claim that we cannot have access to absolute truth, it's yeah. not attainable. So um, I, I have more to say about that, but I want to piggyback off the astronomy example you gave, mm -hmm. which I think is hopefully useful. For a long, long time, humans thought that the sun revolved around the earth. Yeah. Right? The sun rises, the sun falls. Yeah. You can see it. Pretty obvious the sun's going around the earth. Yeah. Very clear, right? No not not much of a contested fact. Then along comes Copernicus and the discovery of heliocentrism, right? That it's as actually this weird perspectival thing that mm -hmm. the sun is in the center of the solar system and it's us, the earth, that is going around the sun that's creating this visual effect of it rising and falling every day. None of the observational empirical data changed, right? No. None of it. The Just sun the still rises, yeah. still falls. The only thing that changed was the theory. Yes, and right. this is the power of empiricism. Yes. Uh, and the power of theory, right? Yeah, the yeah, frame yeah. of reference. Yeah, but but yeah, and and also later theories like the the not only does this the the whole solar system is spiraling around, around the galaxy. Yes. With the sun in the middle and the planets like right. this around it. Uh, and also, its motions are not absolutes at all. Where, where, where's the starting point of the universe? You can claim that any object is the center of different geometrical, uh, circular semi or semi-circular elliptical movements around it. So mm -hmm. you could claim that the Earth is the center of the universe and, mm -hmm. and that everything is in... Uh, circulating around the earth in mm -hmm. other patterns. It's just right. that it's easier to express as if the, the sun was the center of the yes uh, of the solar system. But the, the point I, w I want to deliver on that is, again, the empirical data is unchanged. The sun still rises and falls today. Yeah. But our change in theory, right, how yeah. we framed the observational data yeah. created an inversion in our understanding. Yeah. Right? could hardly be further from what we originally thought. We thought the sun went around us. Yeah. Now we understand that we go around the sun. Yes. But but I would say that, uh, to play the devil's advocate here, uh, I would say that this is what empiricism does so well. Uh, yeah. Because the data was not uh, 
the data, the, the empirical data that we gathered didn't add up uh, correctly to the, this this picture, Copernican picture of the Earth being the center of the universe. So it's because the numbers didn't add up that we had to revise the theory. Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, so that is what empiricism is. Right. So that that's the power of empiricism. Yes. So uh, so, um, but still. The whole process requires uh, a, a logical framework and deductive reasoning. Yes. Like it requires someone to get that idea. Hang yes. on, the data doesn't add up here. Yeah. There. So there is, uh, and tricky to talk about. There is an interplay between theory and observation. Yeah. But but empiricism, it's not only observation. It is updating the theory, changing mm -hmm. the theory, changing your views. Yes. Yes, and th again, this is an analogy we're using. So yeah, yeah. the axiom of action is a little bit deeper, actually. Yeah, yeah. Because we're talking about ourselves, how we relate to the world, how we act, right? How we are. Um, we are purposeful creatures, right? We have purposes. We aim at objectives. We we try to move towards them. We try to remove that felt uneasiness. That's the ac ac uh, man must act is the first axiom. The yeah. second is. Uh, Human action is purposeful behavior. Yes. Aiming at a goal. Exactly. And so the, the, an interpretation I have on this last excerpt that I also think is useful because the, there is an empirical or an claim by empiricist that empiricism is the best tool or only tool even we have to glean or generate yeah. knowledge that we don't have access to absolute truth. As we said, we can only disprove things and whatever is left over is our best approximation of truth. But that very claim, that assertion is an absolute truth claim. Absolutely. Exactly. You're saying that we, you're absolutely saying that we don't have access to yeah. absolute truth. So it's once again, catch 22 exactly. self-contradictory yeah. theory matters. So this is how <laughs> make empiricism great again. Be a mega, <laughs> Maggie hat or something. Uh, um, mega. <laughs> That's the regulation. Like make empiricism great again. Mm. Uh, because empiricism is only great if you have the the framework to build it on. Yes. And the the, <laughs> the problem is when you build it on nothing, or when when the science is the thing instead of science itself. Mm -hmm. You. You're that's dangerous territory. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. So, and that's the last excerpt I have for today. I guess to try and sum up, we we'll use some analogies here that may hopefully be informative, but they're not perfect fits onto the axiom of action. But the axiom of action as a theoretical construct is essentially irrefutable it's an inarguable we can't you can't get rid of it through reason or argumentation because that is to act yeah it's, as it's are, more of a definition than a theory yes yeah. as are all these other things that he said right time causality subject object these are all implied in the axiom of action itself yeah. and so this hopefully was an introduction to the mind bendingness oh, of this sad. book yes Yes, we call this book ESAM, Economic Science and the Austrian Method. It's not the sexiest title in the world. No, but it is a short <laughs> book, 89 pages. Um, 
I'm not sure if that includes the the end notes and whatnot or not, but it's not a long book. No. Hard to read, as I think we've proven today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Profound in its implications. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll come again together and talk about it some more. I'd love to. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of other stuff to dissect in this book. The argumentation ethics that we alluded to here. Yes. He expands on that. Yes. Any closing words? Spadoinkle. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that means. Knut, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you, you can, uh, uh, I'm at Knut Svanum on Twitter. Uh, you can go to knutsvanum.com to find most of the links. And I'm the host of the Freedom Footprint Show together with Luke DeWolf, who was on this show recently, yes. very recently. Uh, and uh, you can find the Freedom Footprint Show by Googling it, I guess. So, Beautiful. Yeah. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you too, Baron. Thank you for Until it. next time. Until next time.